welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second part of a two-part series with Professor Angie Maxwell. In the first part, we talked about the history of how the Republican Party has used appeals to racism, sexism, and religion to court voters in the South, the so-called Southern Strategy, and the episode just has that title, Southern Strategy. In this one, we're going to take that history and look at the 2016 election through that lens. What are the historical and ideological factors that fueled Trump's meteoric rise in 2016? What was happening on the Democratic side? And where do we need to go in 2020? How should we start thinking about this? So, If you want the context to this conversation, please do feel free to go back and check out the first part, The Southern Strategy. If you don't care too much for context, please do feel free to jump in here. I think the conversation more or less stands up as a single standalone piece, although I will say the first part does provide a lot of great historical context to the themes that we're referencing here. I've been somewhat slow to take on 2020 on the podcast. It's not that I don't care about it. I think it's hugely important and consequential. Um, I guess it's just that we have a full year and a half left of this. I have taken on Brexit a little bit on the podcast, and when I do current events, I do want to bring some sort of value added. I don't want to be just merely saying here are my political preferences, because, you know, there's a bunch of people out there doing that. As I've done with Brexit, when I take on the topic, I want to bring on a real expert to add something about the history or the moral values claims or the political philosophy of or the empirics of what's going on, so that you're getting something out of this that you wouldn't find elsewhere, or at least that's my goal. But for people who do tune in week to week for the podcast, I will say, you know, get used to this because I've been following 2020 news really closely. I've been watching all of the debates and following many of the main candidates on the Democratic side's campaigns. So we will likely be covering this intermittently over the next year. And I think probably a good way of kicking off that coverage is with an extended autopsy of 2016, which I think may not be popular with some of you, actually. Um, I know there's a lot of strong uh, Bernie supporters in the audience, although I did a poll recently on Twitter and I asked um, if it was Biden, would you vote for him, vote for Trump? or abstain or vote third party. And the overwhelming majority of you, I think it was 78%, said you'd vote for Biden, which is reassuring. Not that I think Biden is necessarily the best candidate, I don't, but it's just really important that Trump doesn't get a second term. Only 4% of you were Trump voters, which is about what I would have expected. And, you know, hey, to the Trump voters out there, I commend you for listening to a podcast with a strongly different ideological voice to your own. I listen to some right-wing podcasts. I commend you for listening to a strongly left-wing one. Um, good for you, seriously. And then the remaining votes were um, split between abstentions and third party. 
And I guess it's that final group. I'm like somewhat apprehensive about their reaction to this episode because after giving, like I say, this extended autopsy of what happened in 2016, we get to talking about 2020. And it's both of our views that it's just really important that we, we meaning the Democrats, win that election. And although we certainly have our candidate preferences, we're both in advance committed to showing up, no matter who it is. And I know that's a view that makes some people on the more far left or radical or however you want to describe yourself side to feel uncomfortable or to feel like I'm selling out. So I just, like I said to the Trump voters, I encourage you to listen to a podcast that has an ideological point of view different to yours. I'm tempted, but I won't, to sort of try and give some points in advance and preface that discussion, and I think overall it's probably best not to. I stand by what I said, I believe in what I said, I think at some points there was a hint of frustration in my voice, which might not have been useful for someone who disagrees with me, but in terms of the content of what I said, I stand by all of it. So if you think I'm getting this wrong or I'm dangerously misguided, then tweet at me, email me. I love feedback, even if it's critical. And I will say this. I will say this to my friends who really are not convinced by the utility of voting for the Hillary Clintons and Joe Bidens of the world, is in this conversation, even though we take the opposing view, at multiple points, I interrupt the flow of conversation, both interrupting Professor Maxwell and indeed interrupting myself to give what I see as what I think the objections would be. So at a few points, I think at at least three in this conversation, you'll hear me say, but this is what I think uh, a far left or a radical or however you want to describe yourself. This is what I think they would say here about this argument. Now, you might not feel that my little attempts to play devil's advocate fully capture everything you would have wanted to say. You also might not feel that our rebuttals to those points are adequate. But at the very least, I do that to show that I have listened to the opposing point of view on these things, and I'm not just arrogantly dismissing them out of hand, which is, I think, how radicals feel they are being treated by people who take a more progressive or even centrist view of these things. And I'll say this in closing. I tweeted this out recently. Here's basically where I'm at with 2016. And I can do it in two bullet points. And I tweeted this out recently and people liked it. So I think this is a good place to land. Number one, I am reconciled in advance, if it is Joe Biden or one of these other um, very centrist candidates who I haven't been overwhelmed by as a progressive Democrat myself, if it is Biden, I am reconciled in advance to voting for him. I am reconciled in advance to trying to persuade my many friends who were of the far left and didn't vote for Hillary to do the same. But, and I'll make this commitment in advance, I'm reconciled to trying to persuade them in a way that's respectful, in a way that listens, 
in a way that acknowledges that many of their concerns about the Democratic Party are not only legitimate but normative. In a way, finally, that acknowledges that we are on the same side, and ultimately a lot of what we want in the world is the same, we have a difference over strategy. And we can have a rational conversation about that, while still believing that we ultimately have the same values and are pulling towards the same ends. So that's point number one. Point number two is I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that it's Warren or even at a pinch, Bernie. Because number one sounds absolutely bloody awful. And I don't want to spend a year of my life doing that. I just don't. I would much rather be making the arguments to centrists that Warren or some other progressive is going to be really great for the country. And that they absolutely should not buy into this Republican scaremongering at all. Just in terms of the arguments I would prefer to be making, I would prefer to be trying to make left-wing arguments to my centrist friends than making centrist arguments to my left-wing friends. That just seems, on a purely selfish level, (laughs) that just seems like a space I would much rather be occupying. So basically, that's where I'm at with all of that in terms of where I'm coming from personally. I think ensuring Trump doesn't get a second term is a necessary but not a sufficient condition of creating the types of changes that we all want to see in this country. So that's my preamble there. Let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Angie Maxwell. before we hit record, about how neither of us found... Let's just start with the primaries in 2016. Mm -hmm. Neither of us, I think for somewhat different reasons, found it that shocking that he ended up winning in a way that, like, I remember that... So a lot of my friends are left-wing political types who, like, my standard friend is someone whose bread-and-butter living is, like... Uh, you know, managing a small field campaign for a local candidate, right? Like, that's sort of my milieu. And they would all go to bars to have Republican debate watch parties to laugh at Trump and how entertaining this was. And it, it, it was far too long before it stopped being funny. And my perspective always was, you guys have only ever done door-to-doors of Democratic primary voters. Right. You'll, you'll haven't done door-to-doors of, even in New York State, of Republican primary voters. This is a different moral universe. The other thing I do is I have, weirdly, a few Republican friends and, like, mid-level people I know who, like, have, like, maybe 20,000 followers and, like, you can sort of get... And I just read the comments on their posts. Mm-hmm. And what I was getting from is the politically engaged people online Brickin loved Trump. 
They loved him. Yeah. And he was ahead in the polls. So it's like, this isn't, I mean, I'm not saying I knew he was going to win, but like, he's ahead in the polls. People who are engaged politically on the right love him. And it just does mirror a lot of the language I hear when I talk to Republican primary voters. And if you put those three together, mm-hmm. it's not inevitable, I don't think, but it's not. It's not crazy. Like we were this idea that he I wouldn't thought, I thought it was inevitable that he'd win the primaries. And and the reason I thought it was is because and I remember talking to a journalist from CNN like the week before the S they call it the SEC primaries, the Southern primaries, right? We have to put a football moniker on it. But um and and this and she was like, Well, how, who do you think is gonna win in the South? And I'm like, Trump. And they thought I was crazy. And I remember she said, What about Cruz? And and I said, his last name is Cruz. Like, you don't understand how much has been geared among the hardcore right, which is who turns out often in a primary, to against that, you know, people of color are threatening, right? That they are not going to mind Trump's um Hyper, I mean, hyper masculinity. It's like indeed, it's kind of a selling point. Uh, you know, they're not going to, and they are as long as he'll play the Christian card, the evangelical Christian card. Um, and that's 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 the part. All three of those things is are, are what the myths that I talk about in this book, you know, kind of blind us to, mm. like this myth that we're in this kind of post-racial America because we elect Obama is just, you know, I think we all see that now, but it, it, it blinds us to how hardcore that sentiment is. The myth of this kind of gender gap, which is white, you know, women lean democratic. Um, we now of course understand enough to split it by race and realize, you know, African-American women lean hardcore Democrat and white women lean slightly Democrat but if you break it by region, it, you know, it's reversed in the South. They lean conservative. Mm. They, not even, I mean, it, it, it does, like, if you, if you look at the 2016 election and they say, well, Trump, you know, Trump won white women. Trump, outside of the South, Hillary Clinton wins white women. Mm. Barely, but by a few points. In the South, Trump wins them by double digit. It is two different phenomenons entirely because of that culture of Southern white womanhood that is still very much in place that people don't. It's almost like hard to describe if you don't grow up in it. Well, Um, I think there's a thing which is um, people in general have a really hard time on an intuitive level. I do, we all do, wrapping their head around the fact that the way we think and perceive the world is not necessarily representative. Absolutely. You know? It's it's one it's one of the best points you just made. And it's exactly how we have missed some of this. Because, you know, w- those of us who consider ourselves progressive you know, make some kind of assumption 
that we are moving towards progress, right? right? We're on this arc. We have setbacks. We're on this arc. But if if you were a hardcore kind of Southern white evangelical Christian supporting these like traditional gender roles, whether you're a man or a woman, hmm. and that was your world, that's what your world looked like, then pro- progress is just a dissent from that ideal. Hmm. And they literally people, look at the things we think is progress as pulling away. Like they're looking at it from the opposite direction. Right. And this is one of the big things ideologies do, which is, is a sort of more specific instance of my general point that we don't understand that people see the world in different ways, is ideologies provide images to us of how uh-huh. to conceptualize social reality. And one of those, like you just said, is how do you conceptualize positive social change, right? right. And we see it, we progressive on the left, as like a line on a graph going up. That's yeah. the image in our head. Whereas that's not and this can often be subconscious. The image totally a lot of image a lot of conservatives have is an ideal that can be fallen from. Now, that ideal right. can be, like you say, white woman, it, it can be economic, like the laws of the free market or something. Absolutely. And it's not purely about the maintenance of the status quo, because often that ideal can be something that we've gotten away from and need to get back to. Well, it can be reactionary. Right. Conservatives yeah. can be quite radical in their pursuit of that. Um, sort of fixed little Garden of Eden. Um, The ideological um, theorist Michael Frieden calls it an an extra-human constraint on the social order, something that's, like, given to us. Um, But nonetheless, when they are being radical in their theory of change, it's reversionary. It's getting back to something. And I think, like, a lot of what goes wrong is we assume, again, probably subconsciously, everybody has the same picture in their head. Uh, Here's a perfect example. Higher education. Mm. Republicans in the South have targeted higher education. Their their attitudes towards the idea that you, that higher education is a benefit Mm. or is good, good. The majority do not agree with that statement anymore. Now, how do, I mean, how, how do we live? How do we live in a world where we where people think like going to college is bad? But we do. It's one of the primary social but, cleavages but that's opening up. We do now. We didn't used to split on that mm. partisan wise, but we have in the last decade. And so we have to remember instead of what, even when we're out saying, but education, educate. There is an entire group of people that think that that is a detriment. Right. I mean, it's. And so, how do we talk to them? So, you know, which is the point is it has to be. Progressives have to have to find some understanding of that, if possible, even a little empathy for that, though I know it's difficult on in lots of ways, and just a way of framing policy issues. That could resonate. So, 
Yeah, and one of the... So there's two concerns that I think people are going to have at this point that I want to, like, preempt, and then you can get in on them. Sure. One is that this narrative that, like, liberals are out-of-touch elitists and don't know what's going on with quote-unquote real Americans. Well, first of all, real Americans is a heavily loaded phrase that, that embodies particular ideas of class and race and gender and so on, point Mm -hmm. one. Point two, everything we're saying is equally true, if not more so, in reverse. It's not as if conservatives have any idea how we see the world, um, or by and large that they don't. The second one is that I think people feel that when we sort of talk about, um, if we might call it ideological empathy, that there's a trapdoor underneath that that leads to a hard and ugly relativism. And I don't think that's true, but I think that is the fear. And what I always say is I'm talking about drawing up a map and trying to have the most accurate map that you can of not the physical, but the mental terrain that's Mm -hmm. out there. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be a place on that map that you want to stand and that you want to defend. But that doesn't also mean that, that it's not interesting and important to draw up the map. And indeed, you might be better placed to defend a particular segment of that map if you know what else is on it. Yes, I'll give you a perfect example. So in terms of, you know, Southern white women and this fear of like, if there was this expectation of work and and like you had to be some kind of career woman, mm-hmm. if if you you know, if you didn't have to financially, but you had to, or you'd be shunned or right. There are women that like, there is no infrastructure built to support women doing that here. And, and so it's hard. So there's women looking that might, might love the idea of like, great, but how am I going to do that? Because everything in the, in the culture is shaped for like, stay at the kind of at least one stay at home parent. So it starts to, it starts to feel impossible. And so then you want to, so then it's scary. And then instead of being able to say, but how could we do this? It becomes, we shouldn't, right. right? It becomes this like whatever, but it's coming from a place of feeling like we, we don't create career paths that allow flexibility for a parent. We don't have maternity leave um, at, at, at in big state institutions like the one I'm in now. Mm. Right. And so we make it really, really hard. And that goes into that kind of fear also. Right. So that's like a, that's a place where I, I find how can then we take a policy about like universal pre-K or universal daycare and, and bridge a gap. Right. Mm between people who see, yes, we should have that, and people who are like, that's devaluing what I do. How do we how do we have a conversation about it that includes both? Like, I think there are some places there. Once we understand this, and there are some places where we can get, find a little bit of empathy, but it is hard. Mm. And that's the other point, is I feel like people want clean answers from the political that that realm mm-hmm. is not capable of giving them. That, that, that it absolutely isn't. And it's why, you know, local politics or localizing elections is so important. So how can a, how can, how can a Democrat, Steve Bullock, win Montana? Right. That's so red. How can Arkansas 
prior to our current Republican governor have, who's very popular, but have had a Democratic governor just six years ago who had approval ratings in the 70s. Right. How is that possible? Because we're small state. Hmm. We're small state where people know each other and there can be kind of this very localized, you know, um, campaign and it's very uh, it's not as top line. Mm. It's very, you know, engaged and kind of personal. And that that is also something that I. I hope kind of some progressive candidates, you know, hear that. Um, that working like, you know, it's still local, 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 right at, at the deep core. At the um, deep core, but it's very counterintuitive to me that you would have a Democratic candidate in the next few cycles picking up a lot of southern states on the national no, level. It's it's the only places where that is possible are, um, and I think it will take just like it took a long southern strategy to flip it red. I think it's gonna. I think it takes a long time to flip it back. Um, the if you look at the midterms on 2018, you know. If you look at the headlines for progressives below the Mason Dixon line and the headlines right. above, it's two different nights. I mean, you know, there was there's huge successes for women candidates running outside of the South, right? Mm. And then we have Beto O'Rourke's loss and Stacey Abrams' loss, which, by the way, 75% of white women did not vote for Stacey Abrams mm. and um, Andrew Gillum. But they came close. They came close and they're building an infrastructure and we have data on all those counties now and we have volunteers in those counties. And we have I mean, that is what it takes, but it's going to take a while. Um, Texas probably has the most potential and Virginia um, and and maybe a Georgia like right now. South Carolina has a huge African-American population. And if they do register a hundred thousand more African Americans to vote could 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 get could get close. Um, well, that's but it'll a, take a while. That's a good point, right? Is that um, you know we talk about how do we reclaim a lot of these areas, and it's like you're talking about undoing a generation, two generations of sustained work by the Republicans mm-hmm. with what what one clever election slogan? Like, no, I mean, probably and the not. only reason those three candidates. Gillum and Abrams and Beto work did so well, and they really did, is because they are three of the most talented young politicians that we've seen in a long time. Very, very talented people running. I mean, Stacey Abrams starts two years before. I mean, with long campaigns. Andrew Gillum had, you know, such a sh- if he'd had two more months between the primary and the general election. Could have maybe almost could have maybe done it. That's remarkable. Hmm. But and none of that data and that organizing is lost. Hmm. You know, it's not. Um, it it's but it will but it will. It sho- I remember it shocked it shocked people. You know, that all three of them people were felt so def- deflated hmm. um, by that. It did not. It didn't surprise me. Um, it encouraged me that. It was so close. Um, but it's going to take more than just a good candidate. 
But people don't want to hear right now, especially, I mean, we're talking, what, two days from the last democratic debates. Mm. People don't want to hear right now about a generational effort. They want to hear how are we going to beat Trump? Because, I mean, I think he is beatable in 2020. But, okay, let me give you my quick two-minute narrative. Democrats don't have to win the South to win. No, we don't. Although we have to win either a couple of Southern states or the sort of Wisconsin's and Pennsylvania's of the world. We have to do either or, and there's challenges to both. Um, But so Trump wins in 2016. And my read of the data is people talk about, like, was it racism or economics? Well, it was both. But I think it's pretty clear that race was the leading partner. It's actually, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you on that one from my analysis and that is it is a perfect storm but the other piece of the puzzle that we have in this data and that we put a report out on was the impact of what we call modern sexism which is not a woman cannot do the job it is a distrust and resentment towards women who want to those numbers i ran in 2012 they were off the chart among Mm. whites they accounted for an almost six point um, challenge for Hillary Clinton. And that is controlling too for racial resentment, all these other kind of measures that we do and including economic measures. And so they are all a part of that puzzle and it's not always the same people. And this is a really important lesson from the long Southern strategy for the country. The people that hold these racial attitudes the people that hold these attitudes towards working women, the people with the kind of Christian nationalist spirit, they're not the same people. There are some people that are all three, but it's a small group. They might be two of three or they're just one of three. So you can vote for Obama in 2012 and then vote for Trump in 2016 because you can be not racist but be sexist. Right. And weirdly, there was actually quite a few racists who voted for Obama, but then there didn't was. vote for 30%, Hillary. 30% of the people who express racial resentment, of whites that respect, express racial resentment, voted for Obama. They somehow differentiate him. They make an exception for him. But racists, they say he's again, not that. That's not a crazy thing, though, because if you think about the racists you know, they all Always have exceptions. They always have their they black do. friend who's he like played not that very well. He played that very well. But the modern sexist, if you're modern sexist, you express those feelings. You did not vote for Hillary Clinton. Yes. Let me let me clean what up Here. what I was saying though. Right? Is I was saying is the dichotomy is often phrased as economic anxiety versus racial anxiety. Within that dichotomy, um. Racial anxiety, I think, is more prevalent, if that's the sort of two things you're choosing from. I mean, what what makes 2016 so challenging is because it was so close. It's like, was racial resentment a deciding factor? Yes. Was sexism a deciding factor? I mean, the weird thing is, like, there's, a, there's quite a number of variables factors. that they had they all. been the other yeah. way. And I mean, yeah. even like, I just think like there's this just weird... Um, contingency of like when the election was held i do think like if you'd had the election a month earlier or a month later hillary would probably have won she just got caught in the middle of a number of unfortunate news cycles as the election was held it's it's possible i mean i think that there there are i mean 
this is not in the book, but I have new research that's like a paper that's about to be published that shows that on the economic and race issue, that if you do not hold racial resentment attitudes, then the economy absolutely matters right. in who you vote for. But once you hold those, that trumps everything. That makes sense. Does that make sense? And it's literally, you can like, you can plot it. Like you go over this score on it and then this no longer matters. Right. And it's the same thing with modern sexism. So it, it is both. It is that it is the economy and it is that it is not the economy. It is race. It is absolutely you're right. It's absolutely both. Um, I mean, with Hillary Clinton, then, do you see that phenomenon? What did you call it? Modern day sexism? Modern sexism. It's a scale of questions from psychologists. OK, but do you see that as existing on the left as well? Because I absolutely oh, do. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. It is. a So. So the number of people that we have in this country that express things like racial resentment, which people would call kind of modern racism. It's it's this resentment. It's this denial that we still have racial problems, you know, all of this desire to move past race and then that express this kind of modern sexism, you know, it's not that the sheer volume of people that express that is greater mm. or that it's even less. It's that it has shifted politically. So people have sorted themselves accordingly based on the decisions that the GOP made in this long Southern strategy. It has affected the whole country right. and people have sorted themselves. So you still have a contingency in the Democratic Party with those attitudes, but it's small. It's much smaller. In the Republican Party, it's topped 50 percent. So that is why it's not all Republicans, though. There's millions who aren't, but it has they cannot get control of their party. Right. Does that make sense? It has the American people, just like the South sorted itself. Mm. People who are like minded in those attitudes across the country, though they are more dispersed than they are. So concentrated in the South. Mm. Right. Those folks as the Republican Party moved that way, they shifted accordingly, right? Embracing that. This is why you see a, what happened to Kansas. You see the politics of resentment in Wisconsin, right? It all comes from the Republican Party's choices to go that way and the Democratic Party's counter choices. And then the American people who, when the parties matched on these things for years, then go, where am I going to go? And they sort themselves. That makes sense? No, it absolutely does. And I think it speaks to the fact that what uh, the, the politics we're seeing today of the Donald Trump presidency seems to many people to be an aberration. Like, I mean, this is the Joe Biden narrative, right? That this is this bizarre interregnum period before we get back to sanity. But I mean, Donald Trump's unusual in his presentation and in terms of his background and so on. Like, he's not your conventional politician. But in many ways, the way politics is now seems like the end of a process that's been going on since we started talking about what in the 50s, whereby this, this sorting is now complete, in a sense. Mm -hmm. that like, you know, at the beginning of the period we talked about, these sort of fundamental identities of race and regional identity became untethered from their partisan expression. And it shifted and it shifted and it shifted. And now at the end of that process, they've become re-tethered in that if you have a white, southern racial identity, 
you are voting Republican now. Like now, it, it's taken two generations, but now we're at the, the end of that process. And now the, the sort of top level partisan identities and the more <laughs> fundamental social identities are now, f- I mean, maybe not fully, but are now much more closely aligned again. Yes. So what's hard about the realignment of the South is that the people that were living in the middle of it changing, Hmm. it is so, I mean, we can only see this now with a backward glance. So if you're living in the middle of it, it looks like you have two-party competition. Right. It looks amazing. You're the purple state. Like this is, people must be changing their attitudes on race. They must be changing. You know, it really is an impossible thing to see while you were in the middle of it. But now on the other end of it, you can see all of this as Trump, as the culmination of this long Southern strategy. So much so that, and, and I, and I should say this and I, cause it's really important too. Some of this is structural because the Republican party does winner take all primaries. Right. Right. And they put so many Southern states on one day. Right. And so if somebody is getting, 35% and you have 12 other candidates or 20 other candidates and it's winner take all like it's not going to take that hardcore faction is given so much say and so much power right, right. and then when that person is running after an african american president and is running against the first female nominee it is going to it's going to amplify it all pretty dramatically. So let's 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 sort of close with this. Is like there's a few questions here. Is like why did Trump win by sort of pulling hard to that particular segment in 2016? We've talked a little bit about 2018, and then where where is that going in 2020? So in terms of why he won with it. I think there's a thing of like, like I said earlier, wherein um, this libertarian um, economic ideology has often just been used as a way of expressing a more fundamental sort of identity. And Trump just spoke to that identity directly. And there was a wonderful moment of like Schadenfreude for me of seeing all these Republican beliefs who believe that if you go against the Heritage Foundation on a single point, it'll be the end of your career. That A lot of base voters just didn't give a shit about that. And they were perfectly happy to have someone talk to them directly on it. And that that always was the driving animus. So Trump became loved. He had like that real identitarian loyalty of like 30% of the country. And then I think what happened on the left, I think he was beatable in 2016. I don't think it was inevitable. But I think what happened on the left was two things, which was complacism and sexism. I think we really convinced ourselves that he couldn't win. Because, like I say, we don't understand that other people have different values and different modes of processing social reality than we do. Um, and I had long debates with people who were voting for, like, fucking Jill Stein or something. Um, and, you know, we argued, we argued, we argued. And what it really came down to is I had this two-hour conversation with someone once who is a bright, intelligent, informed person. And at the end, she just said, but you don't really think he can win, right? 
And oh, that well, had, is what it I, came I, I, down I, I, to. We're yeah. on 100%. The day after the election, I had 26 women call me. Yeah. Of all different walks of life. And a lot of them had not voted or voted third party. And their regret and rate was was like palpable and they didn't they just assumed she'd win so here's all the things here's all the mistakes we made because we assumed she'd win we assumed she'd win and so the media played donald trump's rallies in full because surely everyone will just be so appalled by this right, right? not realizing what it's doing right is spreading the message we assumed she'd win and was like we're nervous about opening a full counterintelligence investigation into the influence of potential collusion because that is so aggressive and if it got out it is really going to look bad and he's not going to win anyway and if you're Comey, why do you release this letter? Because you are terrified that it's going to come out later and then you're going to be accused of partisanship for not revealing this ongoing investigation to the American people. And you assume she's going to win. And right. so you just want to make sure, right? We assume she's going to win. And so even Obama himself, who knew about some of these things, doesn't push back against, you know, Mitch McConnell saying this is going to look like this is going to look partisan and all of this about revealing this stuff to the American people. We have the, the, the most poorly funded third party candidates. None are in the debates, just absolute, um, you know, throwaway candidates that a enormous number of people in this country voted for hmm. way bigger than anything related to Nader in 2000. I mean, a huge issue. And it's because they didn't like either one, but a lot of them are people who didn't like Clinton, but assumed she'd win. Right. You know, they didn't want Trump. They assumed she'd win. And, and what's what, what the part that kind of keeps me up at night sometimes is we, we assume she'd win so much, and no woman has ever won. Right. No woman's ever even been the nominee. Right. And that, we assumed it that hard. Like, do you know how crazy that, like her or not like her personally, whatever, to, to be the presumptive nominee, the presumptive winner, the life, the choices, the, the, the criticism that has to be endured to be that, to overcome and be that is like, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even fathom it. And then we assume it so hard. We assume you write out of it. Which is the other. Yes. Yes. I'm going to go. It's just like the dagger in the heart, right? Like so, it, it is. I mean, it is to a lot of women because they may not have liked her, but they have all been the person who, has worked so hard and seen like the Trump like frat guy and no, no Chris. And there's a lot of very nice frat guys, you know, get something. And you're like, that can't happen in this situation. She was the secretary of state. Like her polling numbers coming as secretary of state are extreme high sixties in approval. Obama's approval ratings are so high. Like 
it makes sense that we'd assume it, but but we lost sight of how pioneering it was, and we didn't protect it. And the irony now is we say, but see, we, we're worried now a woman can't win. Right. And I'm like, oh, my God. So we assume one will and assume her right out of the job, and now we assume they won't, they can't. won't give them a chance. Like, Yeah, so I'm going to go off on this a little bit, because this is like a pet peeve of mine as well, in that it was somehow the perfect confluence of believing two things, both of which were not correct, but both of which were also mutually incompatible. It was like a perfect storm of wrongness, and it was invisible to the people who had it. And, like, if you saw it at the time, because, like, what you saw in Hillary Clinton to someone like Kate Mann is quite good on this, was just um, an exact confirmation of what a decade or two of like oh. psychology and social science research would tell you to expect about women seeking power, right? In that, you know, it's not about, no, I don't think, well, some people do, but it, it, it wasn't so much about we fundamentally believe that a woman cannot have this position. It's that we are predisposed, men and women alike, to view the act of a woman seeking power as unlikable. That is That right. is the shift. That is right. the shift from, yep. And particularly exactly. an obviously intelligent woman oh, yeah. seeking power. And there's become this narrative, and this is why I say it's the problem on the left. There was plenty of people who were always going to vote Republican who held sexist views about Hillary Clinton, and there were some people in the centre who shifted because of it. I think it, it was in a mutually sustaining relationship with this apathy and complacency that... Um, that we allowed ourselves to believe that she just like wasn't that great a candidate and just wasn't mm -hmm. that likable and it mm -hmm. gave people on the left permission to kind of believe lies and tropes and partial truths about her that they probably would not have believed about a male candidate and one of the factors that I think is underrated here is as the Republican Party has become hypermasculinized, the, the Democratic Party is maybe feminized is too strong a word, but it has created a space for female leadership within that party, not just at the presidential level, but you see a much True. far, um, far more female senators, congressmen, local absolutely. representatives. And I think there's a big part of people like me, right, who are involved in Democratic Party politics, work Democratic Party campaigns, um, and are, you know, young, middle-classy white guys, essentially, who find mm -hmm. that very threatening. And there's been a sort of backlash from the male middle of the party against the top level, increasingly female level of the party, that... And it's this myth today that persists that Hillary Clinton was a uniquely bad candidate. And it's yeah, so, I, yeah. it's so yeah. weird. It's just not true. Like, it's if you, if you compare true. her... I've been really thinking this recently. If you compare her to Joe Biden, right? 2016 Hillary Clinton versus 2020 or 2019 Joe Biden. By any objective measure, she's better. Like, she's a better debater than he is. She's more mm -hmm. confident. She has a greater command of facts. I don't know, but my intuition is she's more intelligent. Um, she's more liberal, actually, than his platform. Mm -hmm. um, 
So She's a it, pragmatist. If you try and quantify it by any means, she comes out ahead. And yet this idea, she, she although she certainly has had her gaffes, she gaffes less yeah. than he does, she certainly had her problematic statements on race in the past, but they're just dwarfed by his, right? They, they are. Um, and they're all dwarfed by Trump. Right, of course. Yeah, um, like not but, even comp- but there's a narrative surrounding Hillary that somehow she was... There's a lot of people on the sort of Bernie Sanders voting left who yeah. maybe didn't vote for her in, in the general election in 2016, who will say, we lost because she was just a uniquely unacceptable candidate. So, but so, they can't they can't quantify that statement in well, anything I, other I, than a generic unlikability. This is going to kill you. So this modern sexism scale, because this is another thing that both things can be true at the same time. Right. So when you take the modern sexism mean for people who supported Bernie Sanders in the primaries, right, it is lower that average. So they're less sexist than people who supported Hillary Clinton. Right. But the 25% of Bernie supporters that would not cross over and vote for Hillary Clinton in the general, their modern sexism scores are off the chart. That is so not Doesn't surprising. That to make total sense, and so yes. then the when you call them all sexist Bernie Bros, people get offended, and they should because a big chunk of them are not right. But the chunk that is is very real at the same time, right? Yeah. And and, and I, I think what you're what you're pinpointing in the Democratic Party in this kind of tension, you know, one of the other it, it comes some. What from this long Southern strategy? Because I think the mistake that we keep making, thinking like some of these Republican women are going to like cross over and vote for a female candidate like Hillary Clinton, is that we ignore how many feminist men have been working hard in the Democratic Party because that's what it's really about. It's not gender. It's do you, you know, do you believe in? you know, women's equality all the way. And there's a whole lot of men that do, and we do not reach to them, Right. you know, and that can make those folks feel left out, feel um, overlooked, feel, and then that kind of resentment starts to build. I mean, I, I think that is a piece of it too. So I think it's two things. First of all, 100% agree. Well, I didn't know that data, but I'm like, you know, sometimes data just tells you what your intuitions are just screaming at you. Yeah, I've been quite critical of Bernie Sanders and quite critical of his following. And I should say, every single person I am friends with personally, like from my wife on down, voted for Bernie Sanders, right? I am not saying all Bernie Sanders supporters, but there is a sort of um, contingent within that who are darkly unreasonable about politics. Yes. And we're seeing it now. Um, I saw a poll recently that obviously his support has shrank within the party, so the percentage of his following who are like this is now greater. Apparently 25% of his current primary support would vote for Trump if Warren won. Yep. Um, And here's what I think's happening with them, because I think there's an element of it to which I'm quite sympathetic and then an element of which I'm deeply not, and they've been run together. So the element of which I'm deeply sympathetic 
is not so much the base rising up against the leadership of the party, it's the mid-level of the party rising up against the elites of the party. So like I say, the people who volunteer to knock on doors, the people who Mm -hmm. post on social Mm -hmm. media, the people who run election campaigns, maybe a few hundred thousand people in America, maybe a million at most. They have had two big grievances with the leadership of the party. One, they're more ideologically left-wing than the leadership of the party, and they're mm-hmm. frustrated about that. That's a, that's a valid mm-hmm. grievance. Mm-hmm. Two, um, they have felt like they're following generals who don't know what they're doing. Because over the last 10 years, you know, if you just look at the top-level presidential races, we're doing all right. But if you're the type of person who works on state-level races, we have been getting fucking eviscerated for a decade. And the response from the elites has never been, okay, maybe we'll sound you out on this social democracy stuff. It's never been, we need a new message. It's never been, there's never been any hint of maybe we got something wrong. It's been an arrogant, entitled, um, just a- assumption that they are the natural ones who should be in charge of the party, and a dismissive arrogance towards people who either want to pull it towards the left or want to do something else, or like just think that just on a purely technocratic level, the people from governing the party aren't very good. That is all very real, and it was kept in check because we kind of liked Obama. Right? Yeah. And then those people who are having that resentment are also 85% young men, young white men, right? And at the same time as these... And they're making that argument while supporting a candidate who is not a Democrat. Right. Who has Um, made no investment in the party as an individual, which is an issue. But what, what happened with the 2016 primary is that resentment, which was legitimate and was bubbling away, was also on a parallel path, a resentment yep. that the leadership of the party was turning female. And you went over that decade from, what, I don't know, what, like... And fifth... Clinton. I mean, yes. it's the Clinton people. I mean, it literally is the same people. Right. And then know? when Clinton emerges as the presumptive nominee, that is the match that just ignites this pool of gasoline. Mm-hmm that has been bubbling away for so long now, in that a number of windows pull together. The, she, I think the, the, the portrayal of her as like a neoliberal was maybe a little unfair, but she was perceived as that. That sure. she was a woman, that she was part of this governing elite, prompted an open rebellion of these mid-level people. And it wasn't the base against the elites. The mid-level went to war with the leadership of the party for the base and ultimately lost because the black older black voters within the base stayed loyal to the leadership. And I think that's in that is the presidency of Donald Trump because then some the minority of those people who were primarily motivated by sexism as opposed to an ideological and technocratic struggle for the control of the Democratic Party mm-hmm. they stayed home. And in that is 2016, I think. And maybe some Russians. Oh, and the Russians. And, I mean, I'm just telling you, because, yeah. and by the way, one of the biggest Russian-run website, Facebook groups, that's in Mueller's, I mean, not Mueller, but in the, you know, indictment, the second indictment against the Russian nationals, was a, you know, Heart of Texas Facebook group promoting secession. Right. I mean, they played the Southern divide 
constantly. But just to, I'm sorry, I'm almost done with my rant, because this is, this is a rant I've been meaning to go on on the podcast for a long time. But weirdly, what enabled it was the complacency. So you had people believing that Hillary Clinton was a uniquely unacceptable, unlikable, read woman-seeking power, neoliberal, who was a disaster for the party. They believe that while simultaneously believing that she's certain to win. Correct. And those are both beliefs that are factually dubious, but they're also beliefs that are not compatible with each other. And, 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 and they also... And this is the part that's where I think you're totally right about the where modern sexism and this kind of resentment towards women in power plays a role is that even if someone thought she was a uniquely bad candidate, if they didn't have those feelings of the kind of sexist resentment, this modern sexism, then they could have realized how much that candidacy meant to so many women in this country because it did. Yes. It, it, and it could have like said, well, it's not my favorite. Cause here's, here, here's the thing about 2020 too, is that we have to get over this notion that the candidate has to be the one that we prefer. Right. And the reason I, you know, I have a, I have a very good, a colleague um, who does African-American politics is an African-American woman herself. And she, I remember coming in in 08 and it was like, I like Obama, but you know, I was disappointed. Of course I'm going to vote for him. I was disappointed. And she looked at me and I've never forgotten. And we've talked about it multiple times. Uh, She looked at me and she said, you know, it's never the person we want. Mm. It's never the candidate we want. And we show up every time. And, and, and it just hit me at this like deep place because that is true. You know, African-American women have... Sh- you, do we think Doug Jones is their favorite dream candidate <laughs> in Alabama? Right? But they show up. And so we have to get over. We have to make our peace with, like, I can pull the lever for any of them. There's some it will be very hard, but I will do it. Because it isn't about one candidate. You know, it's not going to be fixed in one cycle. And if the Democrats do not unify... And they get aggravated that it's the person they didn't want or they think it's, you know, whatever. They will lose. We will lose. Mm. Democrats will lose. You know, the unity is the only thing that is going to that's our biggest advantage in 2020, our biggest advantage. And and, and so I feel kind of. It's kind of self-indulgent of us to go. It what I felt like it was of me in 2008 when I'm like, well, it's not the candidate I wanted, hmm. right? I mean, how dumb is that? Look, look, look at who Obama turned out to be, right? Yeah. You know, lots of flaws, but a a good, strong president. You know, like that's what I'm saying. Is like, it is disappointing when you work hard for a candidate and it's not it's not yours. It is it is painful. But we've but all been party there. For, but we we have, and there have there are people there are people we should model, like African American women, who have rolled out for the collective good, despite 
the individual in the position. The problem is here, this is such a conflict. Look, I am on your side on this, right? And I share... You know, right? As look, look. With all these conversations, I'm happy to do the you know white straight guy check my privilege move. But believe me, I share a lot of these frustrations, right? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a thing where we're talking past each other. In that, I know my my audience. By the way, this is going to be great. My audience are primarily Bernie Sanders people. So I will say, Bernie Sanders. Look, he's a politician. He has a lot of good points. He has some bad points. He's definitely moved the conversation to the he left. He has moved the conversation. Good. It's an enormous accomplishment. I um, he's also been a passive beneficiary of sexism. Bad, right? Like, like we can we can have these conversations, but he is a politician, right? We can. What man? Ha- I mean, what what man has every male candidate on both sides of? Both I, I think there's there's a there's a when we are saying what we're saying, which is it is really important that Donald Trump. It is really important that Donald Trump doesn't get a second term. What a lot of people are hearing is put up and shut up, and that your concerns about the leadership of the Democratic Party are not valid, and that we are not listening to them. I don't, oh, think, it's, I don't think that's right, but I think that's what they're going to hear. I, I, I hear you on that. I feel like people should... ...psychologically, because I have a lot of female friends that are in angst. Say, make your peace with whoever it is. Make your yeah. private peace with it. And then go out and fight so hard for who it is that you want. That's how I feel. Yeah. And that means, I mean, but, but, but do not put so much expectation and such like an almost an ultimatum of your own energy and support onto one person to the point that the disappointment is so profound that you can't see the bigger picture in this election fight against Trump. Yeah. But do that in your own kind of psychology, but then go out there and fight like fight like hell for the who who you think is best. And also don't quit fighting whoever it is because you will move them. You know, you will move them on issues, you know, and I believe that. And if there's anything that's proof of that, it's look at the impact Bernie Sanders has had. Right. Didn't get the nomination, but has he moved the party? He has because it doesn't stop there. And, you know, I'm not, a, am you know, I'm not a Bernie fan, but I will absolutely vote for him if he gets the nomination. Here's I will vote for him. I will, roll, I will campaign. I will give money. I will do that for the party. Absolutely. Here's what's weird, though, is I feel like this is where I struggle to put myself, you know, we talk about assuming we're representative. I struggle to put myself in the other person's shoes. I've been a Bernie Sanders critic. If he were to win the primary this time, there would be no great inner turmoil on my part. There'd be a moment of, that's a bit disappointing that in a year where all these women are running, we got another old white guy. It would be 30 seconds. And then there there wouldn't even be a question in my head as to who I'm supporting in the general. I wouldn't have to do this great big public hand-wringing 
about who I'm voting for. Even if I'm trying to think of, like, my least favourite candidate in this primary. Like, fucking Marion Williamson gets it. It's like, oh, Jesus, of course that fucking happened. Still, it wouldn't even right. be my a question. My angst would be, can they win? My angst would be, oh, my God, they can win. My angst wouldn't be personally, what will I do? Right. right. And whereas there's a lot of people for whom... God help us if Joe Biden wins. And all of the problems people, I think, imagined into Hillary, I think are quite real <laughs> in Joe Biden, mm-hmm. right? Um, in that he's not a great candidate and he said some really problematic shit. And, like, you know, I, I get you, but, like, there's a lot of people who will spend months agonizing on if they can cast a ballot for him publicly. And I don't. I really don't understand it. I, I know. I think it's it's it is. It, you know, this is that lesson from African American women voters, but it's also a lesson from how Hillary Clinton handled herself when she lost in two thousand and eight. Which is, it is about something bigger. Right. It just is, and it's like it can be devastatingly disappointing, and people can continue to criticize. But they also, I mean, look how fast they got Biden to flip on the Hyde Amendment. Right. I mean, put the pressure on whoever it is. You know, it doesn't let up. You know, it is, it is, they're going to move where the people move them. Right. And you it, know, we're not saying that, that there's not a difference because you can no, pressure Biden, but we'd rather have someone we don't like Elizabeth Warren who's kind of on our side to begin with and we don't have to pressure. They're just there. Of course, because it's right? exhausting. And I get that. And I think the final point, we've gone way over fucking time, but the final point is like we're saying this because we care. We're saying this because we are concerned. And it's sort of like like trying to convince someone that elephants are larger than mice. And if you don't, 100,000 people will die. That's sort of how we feel. Yes, know? it is. And it's not like the two parties are close. In no. a moment where the two parties are very close. And so you feel like if, you, if you're like a Bernie supporter and he doesn't get the nomination, that like maybe y'all move over here. Maybe the Republican Party will come closer to you. I mean, this is not what is happening. No. You know, no. if it was, I would understand that strategy. But unless you're going to build a third party a real long-term plan for a third party in which you're going to have to have a specific title for the third party and get 5% to election cycles in a row to get public funding and then to grow, then you have to realize the dynamics now put Bernie a million times closer to the Democratic Party and polar opposite the Republican Party. And that is the nature of the two-party system, which I don't love. Right. But it is our reality unless people get to, I mean, that's going to be the sad part to me about Bernie. If, if, if Bernie does not get the nomination and he might very well might, um, I think it's totally possible, but then if Bernie had run as much as Democrats would have freaked out, but if Bernie had run as an independent in 2016 and gotten 5% and runs an independent this time and gotten 5% in 2024, an independent, whoever they pick to run a top of ticket, would have gotten public funding, right. which is millions and millions and millions of dollars and been on the debate stage automatically. Right. And you can build a movement like that for a third party, which, you know, 
But I've worked for the Working Families Party in New York. This is a long, hard slog, which these people... It is. It is. It is. It's a long game. It's 100% a long game. And it's it's why we don't have third parties, because these kind of third party candidates or independents that run either run on the main party platform or, you know, it's not really a party. It's that person. Yeah. You know, which I don't get. Like, if you, this is what I don't get about this: is if you're going to form a cult around anybody, Bernie Sanders, really? Um, I mean, well, okay, sure. Turn it into a party. You know, like that's the thing. It because if not, it's gonna it'll die. When, I mean, it'll go whenever he doesn't run again. You which know, where's that like, energy going to be transferred? Yeah, I mean, I think. There's the, the problem is, though, is that their theory of change is we just withhold our votes until we get a candidate we feel represents us. I mean, look, actually, it, that doesn't give them power. Their no. power comes when they show up and say, I mean, an, a, perfect example, African-American women. Right. They are Doug Jones in Alabama's biggest voting bloc. Right. Because even though they're a small percentage of the population, they vote in such high numbers. There's literally more individual African-American women voters than any other group in his in the votes he got. Right. So who now does Doug Jones have to listen to? Yeah. But like period. Who does he have to listen to? Who gets a seat at the table? Who does he have to go deal with their issues? And they are they are a relatively small portion of the electorate, but they now get to run that. And look he is going to listen to their issues. So to me, you know, staying home is what the. I mean, I'm not in any way comparing the two by in terms of what they believe in at all. But that's exactly what kind of the the Dixiecrat group thought. We'll stay. We will pull out. We will run our own candidate. The Democratic Party will have to listen to us. Right. And it absolutely backfired, you know, blew up in their face. It's also not coherent with other things that they believe. So you can believe that Clinton versus Trump is just two neoliberals and it's not worth voting because there's no difference. I, I, I don't understand it, but like, sure, that's a point of view. But you can't hold that point of view while also believing that the anti-abortion laws in a lot of southern states are a moral outrage and need to be immediately ruled con- unconstitutional. You can believe one of those things, but you can't believe both because the only reason those yep. laws will be ruled const- unconstitutional is because Democratic presidents have appointed certain judges, right? You can believe A, that there's no difference, or B, that it's morally important we strike down those anti-abortion laws. You can't believe both. I agree. And it's, it, I, I, I and never kind of more so than now. I mean, you're not going to wake the Democratic Party up to move to your side by not participating. It's just not how party systems work. It's right. simply not how party systems work. They break down the voters they got. That's who they break down, period. That's who... Th- it, it's just... It's just, it's just, it's fundamentally kind of not how, take the names out of it, how, you know, party systems operate. No. All right. So I feel like we both- We've solved all the world's problems. Yes. <laughs> um, all I right. do believe, I do really, 
I do really think that Sanders pulled the party in directions it needed to be pulled. Yes. I think that that was an enormously, I actually think it was very brave to run against Hillary Clinton. And I think that I would love to see that energy harnessed into the party because it would make a difference. Um, but we need those I folks would. to show up no matter who the nominee is. And, um, and, and I would I like I would like to see a progressive candidate. I mean, I'm depending Absolutely. on how it goes. Like, I'm probably going to vote for Warren. I don't know. We'll see. But like, that's where I'm at at the moment. Um, and some people say she's insufficiently progressive and blah blah blah. But that's just I think a tribalism for Bernie. Um, but more than like having a presidential candidate, I want to see real representation for real progressives at the state and local level, I think and that's a big a chunk of point. our congressional representation. I want to. Tea Party of the left, you know? Like, mm-hmm. that's what's going to get us it. And as, as we've discussed over, what, two hours now with, with your book, it was a generational, intergenerational effort that got Republicans to the point where they have this lock on particular identity groups, and they essentially now have a form of minority government. It took, it took 60 years of hard, sustained, coherent work. That's what we're looking at on our side. And you could wish it would be otherwise, but you would only be wishing. It's 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 very it's very very true. And the Republicans, the other thing that they did too is they they really they cared about every little committee, and every chairmanship of a committee, and every school board, and every state representative position in ways that like. Do and so did the Southern Baptist Convention. That flipping, it was every seat on every little committee. It matters. So even if you don't get the top of the ticket, might, but even if you don't get the top of the ticket, all of those other leadership positions at every state level, at every county level, they matter. And and I, I, I will say this, and I said this the other night on Twitter too, is when I was watching the debate, I kept thinking. There's so much talent on that stage, both nights. There's so much talent. There's so many people who stepped up to run. It's not easy Mm. to do. The bench is so deep on Democratic Party side, Mm. you know, so fight like for whoever you want. But remember, there are there were Republicans that became president that ran three or four times, you know, like there's so much young talent, too, on the Democratic Party side. Like if we can just remain kind of focused on the big picture, you know, and keep chipping away. Like, don't get disheartened. Yeah. Or be disheartened. Vote frustrated and pissed off. I don't care how you feel. But, like, don't... Yeah. Don't just surrender. Don't disengage. Yeah. Don't. It, it will... It will... It takes time. It will come to pass. Like, don't disengage. Like, it's been... There's been so much good stuff that's happened because of the kind of engagement of the far left and of young people. I mean, it's doesn't always flip the top of the ticket right away, but it, en- it matters. Engagement it is an act of... If you don't like the status quo and you feel disenfranchised from it, engagement can be an act of resistance to that. You're like, you voting, you showing up, is Absolutely. not you legitimizing everything that the Democratic Party does. It isn't. No, 
It isn't. It isn't. Because it's two parties. How can any one candidate, any one candidate, they're all going to have flaws. They're all going to be away from some people. It is like putting everyone in two camps in a huge, diverse country. Like, it's just, it's an unreasonable expectation that we have. So pick the thing, the couple of issues that matter to you the most, find the best person on those, fight hard for them. And then whoever gets it, don't give up on those issues, you know, make them care. Um, Because the next time around, it might be your dream candidate gets the nomination, you know, but over the course of our lifetimes, it's going to go up and down, you know, sometimes it's going to be our first choice. Sometimes it's not, but you know, disengagement is you know, the only thing that gets us through these kind of hard times is meaningful right. work. And I believe that. And 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 if people care about these issues, you know, I I consider them, you know, I could I mean it kind of seems like there's people who care about some of this stuff and there's people who really are in a bubble about it and won't even, you know, process it and deal with it. And if you're one of the people that cares about it, then I consider us on the same yes. side. No matter this what. is this is a family you know? squabble, you know, like, yeah, and I think that, that's a, a good cautionary moment to end with for people on our side of it as well. Is the hard left are not our enemy? They're not. They're you know? not. They are not. And some of them can be hard left because they live in places where that is right. possible. And there are other people who live in places like I live where. You know, we're hoping for just a little bit, you know, that doesn't mean that what we that doesn't mean that where we personally feel, but we're we're trying to move things, you know, to a certain degree. And 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 that's but we are all pulling in the same direction. You know, we really are. We all we're not saying shut up and vote for Joe Biden because we are happy with that. We're saying it because we care that we don't have a 7-2 Republican Supreme Court five years from now, you know? Correct. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And then, whoever it is, push them. Push them. You know? Because, I mean... And I don't know that it will be Joe Biden, but... I hope it's not. Look how he's... I mean, he's moved. He's moved. He has not moved, but just because he's moved from pressure. You know, he's moved from pressure. So, like. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's a long fight. (sighs) And and even electing Bernie wouldn't solve it. No, of course it wouldn't. That's the thing. No candidate, no one candidate is going to solve it. You pick the best because then they're going to need cover. They're going to need pressure on senators. They're going to need, I mean, all of it. Like, we don't just get them elected and then go, see? I, I feel like that's somewhat what happened with Obama. Like, Obama elected, we're like, we got a, this great person in there, and then you kind of sit back. Yeah, and the thing is, I said this earlier, and I actually am stealing this point from Jacob Levy, but um, people seek guarantees out of the political that it's not capable yes. of giving them. And centrists yeah. sometimes want a guarantee that partisanship will end and we'll all come together. And the far left right. want to guarantee, because I know what they're going to say to everything they've just said. They said, but you're talking about a generation's work. We need 
healthcare and the end of foreign intervention and the Green New Deal. We need it now. And we need to just win the political in a way that we can have an election in which all of these issues are solved. And to both groups, I say, well, you, you, you're just saying, I want something that isn't going to happen or is very unlikely to happen. And that might be a disquieting truth. But like we're mapping out what we see as the most plausible path to get the most goods that we can. And if there's a better path, if there's a more like revolutionary tactic that you think could work, I'm legitimately all ears. I just, all I hear from the strategy from the other side is just deus ex machinas. We'll elect Bernie and it'll all be solved. Or we'll do X, Y, or Z and it'll all be solved. And there's just very little reason to believe that that's true. Well, I'll give you a perfect example. I mean, I live in, where I live is Walmart headquarters, right? And um, the Walmart has a big shareholders meeting every year and they invite like, I mean, tens of thousands of people from cashiers, mm. like all the way up. And they let all of those folks vote for who they want to bring as a speaker. And they brought Bernie. And they voted to bring Bernie. So this they is did. so, and this so, is so bring- bizarre. I was actually there and I met Bernie at that. You were there? Yeah. At the Walmart shareholders meeting in Bentonville, Arkansas. Okay, that's where I live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, that's a whole other story, which we need to get into. Okay, that's all I true. But my point is that one of the things, and, you know, Bernie's talking to folks saying you've got to, you know, Walmart's got to pay, you know, a living wage, 100% want that too. This is a a right-to-work state. And they can't unionize, as is most of all of the southern states. And because Walmart's a public company with now fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, can't go above the minimum wage without some kind of justification and reasoning. So if we could raise the minimum wage on the ballot in state ballot initiatives, which we did here in Arkansas once and need to do again to higher numbers, then there is no option. They right. have to pay it, right? So it's it's like the idea is right, but the how you where you send people's energy to accomplish that idea is sometimes the stuff that gets written off as kind of policy right. wonk ish, but it's actually what matters, yeah. you know. And I feel like I. Um, Bernie has such a following. It'd be very powerful if we heard more of that than just the top line kind of ideas. I think there's a thing, and I joked when I had Elizabeth Anderson on, who who, um, I'm sure you're familiar with, there's a danger of getting guests on who you agree with too much because then you just never fucking shut up. Um, um, (laughs) But... There's a deeper point here about political ideology, which is, like I said with conservatives and liberals, when we picture positive social change, the mental image we have is of something different. And a lot of politics ultimately boils down to competition over these mental images. And I think there's our mental image of like a line on a graph going up is in contrast to a sort of more socialist or radical or whatever you want to call it mental image of a decisive break, a revolutionary moment. Um, And I think we have to confront that directly because they see our line on a graph going up as 
morally compromised by its complicity in an unfair right. system. And in incrementalism, you know. Sure. Sure. And I think there's we, we don't have time for it now, but there is a need to have that debate about the genuine challenges and problems that exist, certainly with the line on the graph going up, but then exist with the, the, the revolutionary moment. Because as we're seeing in my home country of the UK, a total breakdown mm-hmm. of a constitutional order is just as... The revolutionary moment never comes from a positive. The revolutionary moment always comes from disaster. Right. But even... And you can't will the disaster. But even when they happen, these sorts of breakdowns are just as likely to be fueled by and in turn fuel nativism and xenophobia and closed-mindedness. Like, like the the UK's constitutional order right now is dissolving, right? If you want a hard Mm -hmm. reset of the system in which anything is possible, the UK is a good example of that, but that's not anything that any far-left type would want. It's such a risk. It's like, it's such a risk. Like you want things to blow up so you can start over, assuming that the start over reset will go the way you envision it will go. It could go but they the other almost way. Almost never do. That's the thing. Correct. Correct. And I think Correct. that's the real debate that has to be had, which we don't have time for now. No, I, we don't. I, I, so <laughs> listen, thank you so much for being generous with your time and for doing all of this with me. Um, I, I really appreciate yeah, well, it. Thanks for the great question, the conversation. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's everything. We've solved it all. No, you've given me a lot of a lot of really good stuff to think about, and I appreciate great conversation. Yeah, everybody's got it. That's right. Uh, yeah, sure. My um. If they want to follow me on Twitter, it's Angie Maxwell one uh, at Twitter and um, look for if um, have a piece from the Washington Post from last week that's up on pinned on my Twitter and um, give some of the arguments in the book too that people might find good and interesting and other than that i will just be doing what everybody's doing is watching all of this for the next 64 weeks this is going to be a long year isn't it yeah it really is 